We pray that you would still inquire our hearts now. Lord, as always, there are any number of uh, situations that we have pending, some from the last week, some maybe later today, things that we're moving onward to do in the afternoon, things coming up this week. Easy to get distracted, easy to think about those things when in reality you've brought us here now to focus on your word. And so that's what we pray. The word of God will have the preeminence in our heart and hearts and minds now and that each of us will go away with something. Would you, would you just be so kind, Lord, as to um, give me that fresh sense of your presence and help in the teaching of the class today, a, a, a fresh cleansing from sin, and the ability just to handle the thoughts that you've given for today in a way that's warm, practical, and helpful. And uh, so this is our prayer now, in Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. Well, remember where we are now with the book. I think it's important, especially as we're drawing to a close with this, to sort of get you oriented back again, as I did last time, in thinking about what we're talking about overall with the book of 2 Peter. So if you think of the contrast with 1 Peter, it was a problem from without, suffering, and we made the point that Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. But a couple of years later, as Peter writes, he's writing to people who are now dealing with attacks on the faith. And that's a a bit of a change in strategy on Satan's part, but it's certainly something we see playing out over and over again. The church suffering attacks from without, and then the church suffering attacks from within. I mean, there's a sense in which you could say that these teachers were on the outside, but there's another sense in which you might think of them as being from within, because you remember what Peter says about certain men crept in unawares, maybe that would be Jude's terminology, He's writing about a similar problem, but in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, or verse 1 rather, it says, about the false teachers who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And the more that we read about these people in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in the book, we get the distinct impression that these were people who at one time identified as Christians, called themselves Christians, and but now had been influenced by these ideas and were now peddling them amongst the people that had formerly known them with a different profession in mind. So we, in chapter one, we see that uh, the Bible is sufficient for faith and, and we see the faith given. We see everything that we need there to be flourishing Christians, but then it tells us, don't be surprised, the faith is also going to be attacked and that's what we have in chapter two and then chapter three where we are now. This is a great way to end because Peter wants to fortify these believers, and so that's why I've I've told you a useful way to look at the chapter is to find those verses, and I gave them to you before, where you have the occurrence of beloved, because it's obvious in the use of that terminology, he's reaching out now, He's, he's kind of transitioned from that blistering attack that he levels against the false teachers in chapter two, and he's transitioning to thinking about his readers and what he wants to say to them So you have the four occurrences of beloved, each followed by an exhortation. So last week we looked at beloved, be mindful, and those were in verses, that is in verses one through seven, but this week we want to look at this lesson, beloved, don't be forgetful. Now, it's kind of interesting when you, it's always interesting, I think, to compare translations and to see how, that is if you're using reputable ones, and if you're using disreputable ones, sometimes you look for a different reason why you're comparing the translation to see if they were integrous or honest or if they were looking to kind of, you know, pull a fast one on you. But if you take conservative translations of the Bible and translations regarded as being 
reliable. It's interesting to compare them. So it's interesting when you look at this particular verse, verse 8. Look at that in our text again. Way, the way that the um, ESV handles this. But do not overlook this one thing, beloved. So if we wanted to use the wording that the ESV uses, we might say something like, beloved, do not overlook. We, we could do that. Um, but the idea behind this particular, and the King James is actually comes along and says, beloved, be not ignorant. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that's, um, well, actually, depending on, on where, you, uh, where you grew up, that might be a very current expression. I started to say that's a little bit archaic to phrase it that way, beloved, be not ignorant. But um, all the years we spent in Pennsylvania, I just kind of was reminded of the fact that's, a, that's current that's current coin there, if, if you refer to somebody as ignorant, it, it has a little different meaning. And so the meaning behind this particular verb, and I'm spending some time here because this is important to us, it's the idea of to let something slip that you're aware of. Or you could translate it, so that's why ESV renders it overlook. Or I, I kind of like the idea of phrasing it this way, it's easy to lose sight of things that you know. Isn't that true? And if you think about what Peter is doing in the book, that's why he has this burden to keep reminding us and keeps talking about the fact that it's easy to forget. So, whereas in the first seven verses, he didn't want us to be forgetful, or he, he told us to, be, to, to remember these things, it's almost now like now you have the other side of the coin, and he's going to address why it is that he says, keep reminded of these things because we're good forgetters and we tend to lose sight of things. Here's the point with this. You know, beloved, it is so important for us to remain in the Bible on a regular basis. That's why attending church on a regular basis, that's why reading your Bible on a regular basis, and being in good Christian fellowship on a regular basis is so important because we have a tendency to let things slip. We have a tendency to kind of just absorb ourselves in other things, or else the constant barrage of the world and its thinking and its philosophy comes on us, and it's easy to lose sight of biblical truth. There's a real downside to that, though, because if you lose sight of biblical truth, then your thinking begins to kind of become influenced in a wrong way. So this is what we have here, and as I mentioned to you in this second statement here, the fact that he uses a present tense, which I know is not necessarily something that you can really fasten on to so much. I mean, you might be able to look at the English and say, okay, it's a present tense, but it would be more to you if you look at the, it, at the uh, we're looking at this in the original, because in the first place, it's an imperative. That's kind of what I've set you up to understand. You have the word beloved followed by an exhortation. So, it's an imperative, it's a command, but it's in the negative. When you have that in Greek, typically the idea behind that is it betokens something that's in progress that the exhorter, the person who's saying not to do this, wants to see stopped. In this case, I think the sense of it is close to that. I think the sense of it is Peter, Peter maybe has a bit of a suspicion that some people are beginning to kind of let some of these, slip, these truths slip, or else, if it's not that, it's simply the idea that he's so cognizant that you and I have that happen to us on a regular basis, that he says, stop, stop letting these things get away from you. You need to be reminded of something, otherwise you'll go down the path or be influenced by these 
these scoffers. And so he's going to mention three things. And uh, so we'll come to the first one, which is, a, well, I'm going to call this a right view of time. Now here's an interesting thing also to explain. If you look at verse 8, he says, but do not overlook this one fact. But yet I just told you there are three things he's going to tell us it's important not to lose sight of. So did I do my math wrong or what's going on? No, I don't think I did my math wrong. I think I, I knew what I was doing when I put the material together this way. I think the explanation for this is that this first thing that he's going to mention is the key point among three. Messing up here leaves you open to the other two. Does that make sense? And hopefully as we look at this and try to explain a little bit of it, that'll become, the point that I'm making there will become more clear. So, what's going on? Well, the right, a right view of time. How do humans look at time versus how does God look at time. And why this is an important thing is, is because the idea of a long expanse of time, which I have chosen to use just a simple word delay for, is a big deal to these scoffers. They've already made a, a big deal out of it. If you go back to verse number four, here you'll find what we talked about there. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what are they saying? Well, they're saying, okay, uh, we'll concede creation. That's why I say, I think these people had a, a profession that was similar to where Peter's audience is now. But we're willing to concede that, but at the same point, really, I mean, time has gone on since then. He refers to the fathers. Let me give you two really early people who were doing the very kind of thing that Peter's doing here. First of all, let's talk about Enoch. Can you turn over a few pages? I didn't give you these verses, but can you turn over a few pages to the book of Jude? And let's look and see what was, Enoch's pretty early, right? What was Enoch doing in his day? Well, it was, a, it was an ungodly day to be sure in which he lived. But look at what it says in verse 14 of Jude. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's the ungodly verse in the Bible. Look at how he just keeps piling up those references. So Enoch is there, and he's doing the same thing Peter is. He's communicating God's message of righteousness and judgment in that ungodly day in which he lived. And you remember, Enoch ended up being translated. He was not, for God took him. I'll tell you somebody else who was very early, Noah. And Peter has used that example. Because if you look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, for if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, look at this, a herald of righteousness. So if you remember your King James translation there, it's a preacher of righteousness. And it's that, it's that Greek word, kerux, and herald is what it is. But it's important, I think, to see that because sometimes we look at the word preacher. So it says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And 
we have kind of almost grown that into a technical term for our pastor or someone who's typically teaching the Word of God, and so we sort of exempt ourselves, when in reality that's not the case. This term in the original is flexible and broad enough to include all of us, and indeed we are. Well, this is what Noah was doing. This is what Enoch was doing. The very same thing Peter is having to do now and saying, look, I'm telling you, these people are going, judgment is going to fall. But the scoffers came back and said, well, okay, since Enoch, since Noah, since Moses, all these people, I mean, look, God isn't doing anything. God's not really involved in time. And I mentioned to you last week, or two weeks ago when we looked at this, that it's almost sort of akin to deism. What you, what you remember hearing about people like Benjamin Franklin and other people who embraced some of the prevailing philosophies in the earlier days of our country where they believed in God, but they kind of saw God as, as a little bit like a, a cosmic clock winder, you know, where God winds up the clock of the universe and then goes on to do something else and just sort of lets the universe run. So the scoffers are making a big deal about delay. That's the wrong way. It's an unbiblical way to view time. Peter says it's also not true. Because they conveniently, in fact, they willingly, willfully overlook the fact that God has done the very thing they say isn't happening because he sent a cataclysm on the earth when he inundated the world and the world that then was perished. That's actually brought up again in our passage today. And so he brings up the right view of time. What's the right way to view time? Well, tell me something, just to answer a simple question. Was time always here or is time something God created? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Like everything else that is around us, God created time. So whether you look at time as a bubble or whether you look at time as a dimension, the important thing that we've got to see is, is that God is above time. Time doesn't affect God. It doesn't necessarily mean that time is unimportant to God. But time is just a vehicle that God has chosen to create, and he has placed you and me in time. Anybody here this morning not in time? I'm not talking about singing. Anybody here this morning wishes you sometimes could sort of step out of the time stream? <laughs> Anybody wishes you could kind of go back? Well, I guess maybe you're thinking of regret. I'm not thinking of regret. If I could go back and grab the physical strength and vitality that I had 30 years ago, but didn't have to repeat all the lessons and could bring that back into to now, I'd take that. You know what? Everybody in this room, now some are younger. I understand that. So you're just kind of listening and you followed away back here because you hear the facts, you say, well, I don't really, it's not really so much stuff that I see right now, but when you start seeing it, you'll remember. Everybody here this morning lives in time, and everybody here this morning is subject to time, and the evidences of that are all too plain. When you looked in the mirror this morning, our anniversary was two weeks ago, and used to be, we haven't done this in a while, but used to be, Every, every, every year on our anniversary, you'd pull out the video and watch it. And, uh, but this year, we didn't do that, but 
we did get into a discussion about one of the young men who was a, a groomsman for me, and I was telling my wife about this and said it was it, just Peter, right, not Andrew. And well, I can I can uh, answer that question. I can solve that for you. And she went in the back there and grabbed a, a photo that had the whole wedding party in it. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I look at that and I say to myself, okay, I'm definitely living in time. 35 years have gone by since then. It's a different thing I see now and a different thing I feel in the, when I go to bed at night and wake up in the morning now. So this is the point, that it, it seems like these two statements are at odd with one another, but in reality they aren't. They miss the point. These scoffers miss the point. We, we've got to be careful. We don't let that happen to us. We can't let this slip. That on the one hand, time is insignificant to God because he lives above it. it it's like the experience of flying on an airplane. You get up to 30,000 feet, assuming you, you, know, you, you've got, uh, you don't have a, a cloud situation that prevents it, but you don't have to really be at 30,000 feet. But you look down, doesn't the world change? Doesn't it look smaller? Don't you just kind of think to yourself, look at all those cars down there and these ants, and they just, just a, you're just above it, right? That's how God is, insofar as time is concerned. He's above it. It does not affect him like it affects us. It's simply God's servant. And in the sense that it's God's servant, in that sense it is significant to God because he's using time to accomplish his purposes. What are his purposes? Peter tells us about this. This explains the delay. And the second argument he gives, okay, the first argument he gives is one from history because he says, okay, you're conveniently, if not willfully, overlooking the fact that God has most certainly intervened in history, in time, back in chapter 3, verse 4, and verse 5. This argument is one from Scripture because he trots out a verse. I don't know if you would recognize this, but if you have a Bible that gives you, you know, little letters of the alphabet and cross-references, it's bound to bring this out. This is actual quotation or citation of Psalm 90, verse 4, which tells us this, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. That's what confirms to us that, that God lives above time. God has created time. Time is simply God's servant. And I love the way Isaac Watts put that in, O oh God, our help in ages past. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. But God also uses time for his purposes. What purpose is that? Well, when we read verse 9, here's what we learn. We find out that what was a big deal and that the scoffers made a big point out of, delay, great delay, is in reality, from God's perspective, great mercy. Why is that? The Lord is not slack, he says in verse, or that's the King James rendering. The Lord is not slow. That, that idea is tardy. Have you ever um, worked with somebody who's just slow? Yeah, um, I worked at a place one time, and it seemed to have an abundance of those people. And uh, the, the way one person put it, I have, I have two speeds, off and slow. And so, you know, we kind of think, ah, oh, people get the lead out, you know? But this is kind of the idea, that, that God is either sluggish, which is to suggest that God is omnipotent, or impotent, that God somehow, or, or negligent. 
And Peter says, you know, that's, that's definitely not the case. His promise, what promise is that? Well, it's already been alluded to in verse 4, the promise of his coming, which is what they're talking about. They're saying, he gave that promise, all these years have transpired, nothing's happened. But instead, God's purpose in what seems to be a great delay is, as the verse goes on to say, as some men count slowness or sluggishness or tardiness, but is patient. That's the word long-suffering, okay? That's the word long-suffering, is patient. It's not the typical word for patience that means endurance, okay? You You have two words that can be translated patience, maybe more. But your common word for endurance is steadfastness, would be the translation ESV typically uses for that. This is the word long-suffering. He's long-suffering toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, we could spend a lot more time here than what we have to spend, and so I'm just going to tell you um, a little something about how, what's, what's involved in the word that's translated here and what I think that kind of, what light I think that may shed on what, what this statement means. Because it's apparent that not all people are saved, and it's apparent that God has not decreed that all people should repent. Right? Because if God had decreed that, it would happen. So what does it mean? Well, this particular statement is just in keeping with with any number of other statements in Scripture that we find that that talk about God's long-suffering and the fact that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Or as Paul says, that's Ezekiel 18.23. Or as he says in 1 Timothy 2, I think it's verse 4, or somewhere right close to the beginning of the chapter, who will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. So as we sit here this morning, is it a true statement? God God desires people to be saved. Is that a true statement? It absolutely is. God doesn't always affect that in the case of everyone. So the translation here is, is I, I, I would, I, I understand that they have scholars that, that do this work and that I, I don't want to come across as, as sounding like I, think I know more than those scholars, but you have to take into a, when you're translating, you have to take into account a whole lot of things other than just technical and lexical issues. You have to think of theology, you have to think of biblical revelation as a whole, which is kind of what I was just doing, trying to give you the broader picture of salvation. What's translated here, but that all should reach repentance, it's obvious they don't. It's obvious all don't reach repentance. When you start looking at this, you find that the word that Peter has chosen to use is a word that I give you there, koreo, that means, koreo, when you take a, the noun form of it, it actually means like a district in terms of, oh, you could say a township or a county or a, and when you think of land, you might say, okay, I live in a place where my next door neighbor's house is 40 feet away. So you don't have much space, do you? You're sort of close in. And our, our corollary expression for that is, well, I, I kind of like my space. When you start talking about space, this is what you've got, not outer space, but when you talk about space as in the sense of room, that's what you've got in this word. So what is God doing with all the delay? Why, why does God allow the church age to go on and on? Because 
It's the same thing as what you find in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis where he sent the children of Israel down into Egypt for 400 years and he had multiple purposes in that, right? He wanted to grow the nation because they were basically just a bunch of shepherds in Canaan. He wanted to grow and multiply the nation, but he was also doing something else. It makes that statement because it, when it says that, the first time about the going down into Egypt, it says, <clears throat> because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet, you know the next word, full. So what was happening while the children of Israel were down in Egypt 400 years, they were not only growing into the nation that God wanted them to be, but on the other hand, because God's always doing multiple things at one time, he was giving the Amorites, already a wicked society, he was giving them 400 more years to do exactly what this verse says. He was giving them 400 years of space, room, further opportunities to come to repentance. Beloved, how all that works out, I don't profess to understand, but I do understand that God is long-suffering. And you and I have all seen this play out in cases where God has suffered long with us. How long did God give you to repent after you first heard the message? Did you come to Christ right away or was it some time involved? So this is what God is doing and they, they, we have to have a right view of time. In due course though, I did, have, I did have that Ezekiel verse for you. I didn't think I did. Have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, but in due course, God is definitely going to keep his promise. The same thing that Enoch said. He's going to come with ten thousands of his saints, his hosts, to execute judgment upon the ungodly. The same thing that Noah was saying. Judgment is coming. It started raining one day. The same thing that Peter was saying. Judgment is coming. And he's referring to the second coming of Christ and the things that are going to follow that. And the promise, as I say in the context, is the promise of his coming. God makes a lot of promises, but that's particularly what he's talking about here. So that's what's going on in the right view of time. Now, if you get that wrong, this is why I think Peter says, but this one thing, don't, don't let this, if you let anything else slip, don't let this slip. In the context of these scoffers and the problems and challenges they were facing, you've got to keep in view a right view of time. It isn't that God's let the thing get out of control. It isn't that God's, off, God's gone off on a lark somewhere and doesn't know what's going on in his world. He's carrying out his purposes in due course. When his purposes are fulfilled, Jesus Christ is coming back, and this judgment that's associated with the second coming and beyond is going to happen. Now, the second thing that we need to be careful, we don't let slip, is a right view of the world. So because the scoffers are under the impression or are purveying this idea of uniformitarianism, that is to say that God has gone off somewhere, he really doesn't intervene, and we're just kind of here. Well, does not too very far from that idea to the idea that, well, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, it's just, you know, there's no real accountability, so you might as well, you're acting as if this world is permanent. You don't really have a mindset that tells you, you know what? I live here and it isn't going to be forever. Do you believe that? I live here, but it isn't going to be forever. Now, I just ask you to prove my point. How easy is it to let that slip every day and not think that way? I live here, but it's not going to be forever. I mean, you know, when we first went to Pennsylvania, 
So, and we were there for a little over 31 years. I mean, I didn't have anybody send me a telegram and say you're going to be here 31 years. I had a philosophy, but I didn't necessarily have a telegram. God could have at any time changed my direction and put me somewhere else. He didn't see fit to do that. Looking at it from the perspective now, I kind of look back and, and think, well, you know, we, we moved there, we had one child. We had our, our oldest son. He was eight months, something like that old. We came pulling into that place with a Buick, with a Buick uh, not a Skylark, Dynamp, what were they? No, that's the Oldsmobile. The, the sedan. Yeah, thank you. I had my buddy there on cars. We had a Buick LeSabre and uh, pulled in there and I think it was an 88. We pulled in there in 89. People came out there to help us move. Two more children were born. And at the one church, more than 29 years of pastoral ministry. I mean, when you're in that, there's a sense in which it just sense it seems like it's going on and on and on and on. Now we're here, and I look back at that and I said, where'd that go? I mean, you know, I about snapped my fingers as fast as what it seems like that happened. That's the way time is. And as believers, we have to constantly keep reminding ourselves, uh, we are not going to be here forever. This world is impermanent. Did I hit a button on, on four? Yeah, must have. So the scoffers live, and that's an easy mindset for us to slip into as well. But when you look at what Peter says in verse number 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever been robbed. I have, not in my home. That's another story. But I do remember as a teenager going to a horse show with, with, horses, with my horse to show, not to observe. And I believe the show was on a Saturday, so this place, I guess, was far enough away that we, we pulled in and we spent the night and went the next morning to get ready and opened the the tack compartment on the horse trailer, all my stuff was gone. My saddle was gone, my halters, my bosles, all that kind of stuff that I needed was gone. Everything was gone. You know what, that guy, when, there's nobody that pulled up there and put a sign that night and said, there's a thief coming tonight. They don't announce it, they just come. And you know what? Peter has learned this exhortation from the Lord very, very well because this is, this was, all the apostles got this from Jesus. Matthew 24, 43 and 44, but know this, that if the master of the house, this is Jesus, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he should have stayed awake, he would have stayed awake, and would not have let his house be broken into, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And there's an application of that for believers because if you think about it, the day of the rapture is the day the tribulation begins. It's not the day of the second coming, but it is the day the tribulation begins. And so there's an application for us as well. We, we don't know the time or the date on which Jesus is coming, but 
This emphasis is particularly to the lost because he's talking about the Lord coming in judgment. And it's just as it was disastrous that night, I got there the next morning, all my stuff was gone. Well, we called the police. And I don't know what those police knew, but they got that stuff back pretty quick. So they must have kind of known, you know, somehow they got some leads. I was surprised. I just figured it was gone permanently. And, but the day of the Lord, he says, is coming like a thief in the night. And you may know that in this expression, the day of the Lord, you almost have something of a technical term. It has Old Testament roots, but when you come into the New Testament and it's applied, so, okay, we're living in this day and time now, it's not so much a reference to the, to the rapture as much as it is to the tribulation period and then the millennium that follows. And we do know that 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm going to give you more verses here, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. So I must have done that from the King James. I changed it for a verse and didn't change it back. Oh, well, no harm done. Um, This is Paul now, so Paul picked it up as well. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail. So you can see this is, this is an application of that now to the lost. Sudden destruction cometh upon them. That's not the church. As travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that so that day should overtake you as a thief. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 14. We also know this. There is cosmic upheaval associated with the tribulation and Christ's second coming. These are just points I want to give you. I have to kind of keep moving quickly here. Here's some verses. Even though Peter's thinking, all right, I didn't read this, but you catch this. Peter's ultimate reference here is to the end of the millennium, not so much to the, to the beginning when Christ comes back. But it is true that cosmic upheaval is associated with the second coming of Christ to the earth. Here is with his own words. Matthew 24, 29, and 30, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so when the tribulation period is over, and we already know about some of the cosmic upheaval that the book of the Revelation describes as happening during the tribulation. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, Here's some from Acts, the same speaker. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. Sun shall be turned to darkness, moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, Peter takes us a little further. Peter takes us to what's ultimately going to be the day of reckoning for this world. And this too, this is not only consistent with Scripture, but it's consistent with what we understand now in our modern understanding of the universe. Because look at what he says in this verse. He says, The heavens and the earth will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. I'm interested in that word dissolved. Dissolution. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a word in Greek that everybody who's ever studied Greek knows because it's the one you learn all your, tip, your, your normal verbs from. Luo, 
which means to let go or to lose. Well, if you think about our modern understanding of the universe, now we know about atoms, we know about electrons, protons, neutrons, nucleuses, all of that kind of thing. We also know about fission, and we also know about fusion, and we know what happens in fission when you get the right quantity of uranium and you have enough of a, an explosive force exerting its force on that to start a chain reaction. The energy that God has in this universe that's kept under control, Colossians says, by him all things consist, which is to hold together. But if all of that stuff, if God removed his power from that and all of this stuff flew apart, we have a little bit better understanding how incredibly, the power that's just involved in this kind of thing. It's just beyond anything we can really imagine. This is what Peter's describing. You do have a verse um, in the Old Testament, and I purposely wanted to give you this one from the King James. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. So the earth, with all of its elements, now the ESV chooses to translate that the heavenly bodies, could be. Stoicheia, though, is a word that more often than not has the idea of the elements, kind of like the ABCs of the universe. Like if you, if you, did you see that word that, that girl from Texas, I think it was, won the spelling bee with this past week? I looked at it, so I don't think I could have spelled that correctly. Once I looked it up to see what the word meant, I said, oh. That's what, you make words with other syllables of words or, alpha, or letters of the alphabet. Those are the building blocks. The ABCs of words are, are letters. Typically, that's, it can mean elemental spirits, but in this case, I think the idea of the elements of the universe gives, sheds some light for us. But he says, with a roar, now this is another interesting touch, which I had left myself a little more time, because I can remember being in a Greek class where our professor was talking about this word. And I actually gave it to you, but it it's it's only occurs here in the New Testament. Nowhere else. Roy Zedon. And it's the idea of a rushing sound. Well, if you go on a hike where you're going to hopefully hike to a waterfall, do you ever notice how you don't hear anything? You start getting closer and you start hearing more noise. You get closer yet, you hear more noise. Why? Because you're hearing that water. That's a rushing sound, but with water. You get closer, and sometimes it can just, it really has a roaring sound to it. To the ancients, an application of this Roy Zedon, it's the idea of something rushing through the air. And when something rushes through the air, it makes a roar, it makes a sound. A whistling or a, 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 a sound like that. They might think of an arrow. You shoot an arrow, you hear that something's rushing through the air. But they didn't have jets then, you and I do. You can really capture some idea of a roar, probably not as much as what this is going to be, but when a jet roars overhead, you have something moving through the air, creating a disturbance, and you hear all of that rushing sound. That's the word that he uses here. So that's a right view of the world. Sorry for having to kick into high gear here, but we're about out of time. You need a right view of life. So, Always good to remember that we're never given prophetic truth just to you know, build our intellects or our knowledge of facts. We do need that. You build on that. But it also has a practical application.
Peter talks about two things, lifestyle and service. So holiness and godliness, he says, what sort of people ought you to be, verse 11, uh, in lives of holiness and godliness, that one, we, that one doesn't surprise us. We, we've heard that, and Peter's even talked about that before. But the second one, and I've chosen to characterize this as service, this second idea of waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, and then he repeats his description of what's going to happen to the, the universe in the dissolution of the universe before God makes a new heaven and a new earth. The idea of hastening his coming, I don't have time to explain this, so I just have to leave it with you, but you know, that's a novel thought. That's not one you often hear, either spelled out in a place in Scripture. I mean, you find verses that, now that you hear the idea, you could maybe put with this, but the idea that the service that we render to God has some bearing on the proximity of Jesus' return, the idea that someone from the Bible would exhort you to hasten the day of his coming by how you live here and what you do for him here is kind of novel to us because we tend to look at these things as all sovereign and set in stone. And that's true. How do you resolve those two things that apparently conflict with each other? I don't know. In the same way that I don't know how you resolve that God constantly tells us to pray and tells us that it makes a difference, but yet he already has these things determined. Somehow God understands this better than we do, but I take it at face value. So I give you three ideas there that you often encounter to explain this idea of what we can be involved in. I'll let you look at that. Time's about up. But I, I give you this because I want to end on something very positive. Peter says three times that you're looking forward to something. What are you looking forward to? Promise, that same promise that's going to be a part of all of this. A new heaven and a new earth. And he says this, in which dwells righteousness. And I have a little thought for you here. Peter talks about being a stranger and a sojourner. When he does, he uses a form of that second word you see there, parikeo. It means to kind of, you're, you're living beside something because you're really not a part of it, but you're a stranger here. There's a difference between that and settling down and dwelling. That's the way it is in this world now. Righteousness doesn't dwell here. Righteousness doesn't get a chance to settle down and be at home because this is an ungodly world. But in that world, Peter says it's new, something you've never experienced before, just like you've never experienced Eden. That's what you and I look forward to. And, of course, there are the verses from the Old Testament. So we got to go. Sorry we don't have more time for this, but let's have a word of prayer so they don't throw me out. Heavenly Father, we just ask you to give us um, comfort, Lord, knowing that you're in control of all these things because we've sort of gone over some ground here this morning that's it's jarring in some ways, and to realize that uh, this world is on a, a trajectory towards the second coming of Jesus and everything that you have planned, the judgments you have planned, the rule and reign of Christ for a thousand years as you have planned, all of these things are going to happen whether people living around us acknowledge them or not. And thank you that as believers we can look forward knowing that, that you have spared us and saved us from the wrath to come 
and also that we look forward to your promise of new heavens and a new earth, something we've never heretofore experienced, a place where righteousness is at home and dwells. Bless us now as we go into our next service in Jesus' holy name. Amen.